If you haven't yet, in your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 14. If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 957. Uh, this, this passage that we're looking at today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 of John chapter 14. And in, in this passage, we're going to hear this, the sixth of seven I am statements that Jesus makes, uh, specific I am statements that Jesus makes in John's gospel. Every time Jesus says the words I am, it should drum up for us the words that, that God said to Moses back in Exodus 34, I am, I am the Lord, this is my name. Every time Jesus says, I am, in John's gospel, he's claiming to be God in the flesh. And in the seven instances where he follows that phrase with something specific, like I am the bread of life, right? Or today, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's revealing a particular aspect of what it means for him to be God in the flesh. Everything Jesus says to his disciples between now and when he is betrayed and arrested is meant to prepare them for the time when he will no longer be with them in the flesh and to equip them, to prepare them, to send them out into the world to spread the message of the gospel and make more disciples of him. As we look at verses 1 through 14 this morning, we're going to hear Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll see how trusting in that reality, as, I, as we just read in Isaiah chapter 26, 3 and 4, as, as we stay our minds on that reality, we're going to see how that reality points us to the resurrection and brings peace to our troubled hearts. Uh, this is the infallible word of the Lord, and I am a fallible human being who has been called to present this and preach this, and so I want to pray and ask the Lord for help, and then we'll dig in. Father, we are so grateful that we come not to hear a man's words, but to hear the very word of the Lord, our creator, our redeemer, and to see in your written word, the living word, Jesus Christ. May we fix our eyes on him. And may he rescue our hearts yet again with the grace that you have provided so abundantly in him. We pray this in his name. Amen. You ever been really sad about something and, and, and uh, gotten this piece of advice from a well-meaning friend or family member? Don't be sad. Right? Maybe you've been that well-meaning friend or family member. It's usually followed up with a, a reason that seems logical, right, as to why it's not actually necessary for you to be sad. Look on the bright side, right? Again, it's well-meaning, but it's unintentionally lacking in, in empathy and understanding of what you're going through in that moment. When someone sees that you're sad and tells you not to be sad, tell me that this has never been your response, or at least what you have wanted to say. Don't tell me not to be sad. Don't tell me how to feel, right? You see, we're troubled by troubled hearts. We're troubled by troubled hearts, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That actually, that actually helps us see that there is some empathy going on there. We, we see this, this wound, this, this uh, hurt and pain in someone else's life, and we feel that that's not right. And it's not. And we want to do something about it, but the problem is 
we have no solution in and of ourselves to fix their problem. And yet, we still want to try to solve the trouble, right? But because we don't have a good solution, we try to just coax the person simply to change their mind about what's actually going on or, or, or to change their mind without actually dealing with the thing that's troubling them in the first place. Don't be sad. Just think of something else, right? We need to understand that Jesus never does this. He never does this. Jesus can actually tell us not to be troubled. Why? Because he has actually done something to solve our trouble. He doesn't just tell us to change our minds, to think about something else, to to forget our situation. He invites us to fix our minds on him. So here's here's our our main point for the morning. Comes right from the text, right out of Jesus' mouth. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in Jesus. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in Jesus. Why? Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way. Let's dig in this morning. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you or would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Now, just before this, Jesus had given his disciples some news that they weren't expecting. We, we read this on Friday night at the end of chapter 13. He, he said, listen, I'm only with you a little while longer, Right? You will look for me, but just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm leaving and you can't follow me. He also told Peter, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. The mood changed in the upper room, right? After spending almost three years at Jesus' side, following him as his closest disciples, they were suddenly faced with his impending departure and their own failure to remain loyal to him. They were troubled by this news, and rightly so. But Jesus didn't simply just tell them, guys, don't be sad. Look on the bright side, right? No, he understood how they felt. All of his words here are calculated because he knows exactly what they're going through. The Greek word for troubled here is the same word that was used to describe how Jesus himself felt in chapter 11 when he saw Mary and the Jews weeping over Lazarus' death. In chapter 12, when he alluded to his own imminent death by saying that his hour had come. And in chapter 13, we've seen this used for Jesus three times now leading up to this. Chapter 13, when he told his disciples that one of them would betray him. He knows what it means to be troubled. He knew the anguish that they felt because he had felt it himself. We need to understand this, though. The trouble in our hearts is a product of the trouble in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God, their rebellion brought trouble into the world and into the hearts of all humanity. Peace 
was troubled by chaos. Rest was troubled by hostility. Blessing was troubled by curse. Life was troubled by death. But Jesus had come to reverse all of that, right? He came to be troubled so that his disciples don't have to be. He had come to bear the punishment for sin and rebellion in order to restore peace and rest and blessing and life to the troubled hearts. He didn't just tell his disciples, don't be sad. He said, trust me. Believe me. He was telling them that that he wasn't the cause of their trouble. Yeah, I just gave you some bad news. But I'm not the cause of this trouble you're feeling. I'm the solution to it. And he told them the reason why he was leaving them. He was going to prepare a place for them in his father's house. If I go away to prepare a place for you, he told them, listen, I will come back again. I'll come back again and I'll take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. He was leaving them, yes, temporarily, but he was doing it in order to guarantee that they would be with him forever. But that's, not, but that, but that's why his own heart was troubled because he knew what that guarantee would cost, his own life. He knew that he wasn't going to stay dead, though. He knew that the resurrection was coming, but he also knew that his disciples didn't know, that they didn't yet understand that, that all of this was going to take place. Right now, they just thought he was leaving. He knew that while his body remained in the tomb, trouble would remain in their hearts. If they were distraught at the thought of him just leaving, imagine the devastation that they felt at the reality of him dying. Jesus' words to his disciples here were more than a well-meaning attempt to get them to look on the bright side. These were vital words of truth that his disciples needed to hear even if they didn't fully understand what Jesus was saying because they would later. In essence, he told them, listen, if I leave you, I will come back again for you, and we will be together forever. That's a promise. I don't say things that aren't so. Do you know that about Jesus? He doesn't say things that aren't so. He doesn't speak out of one side of the mouth and then say something else out of the other like we do. What does he tell him? Hey, believe me. Trust me. Trust me. Jesus also told them that they already knew the way to where he was going, but that offered little comfort for Thomas, and so he spoke up and he said what the other disciples were probably thinking right along with him. Look at verse 5. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told them, told him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Now, when I know that I'm going to travel to a place that I've never been before or I'm unfamiliar with, 
I love to pull out my phone and open up my map app and put that place in as my destination and look at all the different routes that uh, I can take and, and, and all the different things I can avoid and which one is most efficient, which one's going to take more gas and uh, if I have to get on the highway or not, right? I like to be prepared. Thomas is not prepared here. Well, hold on. You're leaving? You're going to this place and you think we know where you're going? Even though Jesus had just told him he was going to the Father's house, right? So how can we know the way? How can we know the way? We don't even understand the destination. How do you expect us to understand the route? Notice what Jesus didn't tell Thomas here, though. He didn't say, I'll put it into the map for you, right? He didn't say, listen, I'll I'll clear the way for you. He didn't say, I'll leave you signposts or breadcrumbs along the way. He said, Thomas, you're looking at the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, the destination, except through me. This is vital for us to understand that Jesus is the only way and there is no other way. Jesus is the only way and there is no other way. You cannot get to the Father by any other means, not by your own good works, not by how many prayers you pray, not by your church attendance, not by your parents' faith, not by how much of the Bible you know, not by how much money you give, not by anything or anyone else. Jesus is the only way. And there is no other way to the Father. You can only come to the Father through the Son. This, so here's, here's what this means for you. If you claim to know God and you, have a, you claim to have a relationship with God, but you reject Jesus, then you don't really know God. And you don't really have a relationship with God. So we need to ask the question, are you trying to get to God by any other way? If you are setting the parameters, the route for your relationship with God, then you need to understand that any attempt to do that is equivalent of calling Jesus a liar. Because he just said there is no other way. That's what he said. So why not instead consider how? He has made himself the only way to the Father. Jesus said these things to his disciples on the night before he would be unjustly nailed to a cross. And as he hung on that cross, not only did Jesus bear the the weight of the world's sin, but he also bore the righteous wrath of God because he was covered in the world's sin. But it was through his death on the cross that Jesus then provided a covering for sinners so that we could be reconciled to God the Father, that we could get to the destination. That covering was his own blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of the sinner's heart. Jesus covered himself in our guilt so that he could cover us in his righteousness. Tell me this. Is that not the most incredible way? Is that not the most wonderful way, the most gracious and loving way? If this is the only way that God himself saw fit to restore our access to him, 
would you be so bold as to assume that you have found a better way? Matthew 7, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the gate. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the gate, and the gate is narrow. There is no room for entry any other way. You must come to the Father through the Son. It's hard to abandon your own way and to trust in Jesus as the only way. In fact, it's impossible apart from the grace of God. That's why the cross is necessary because that's where grace was poured out. So why not receive that grace this morning? Why not Trust that that way is the best way and turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Believe me. Believe in me. That's what he says. If you do that, you will find that his way leads to life. Verse 7, Jesus reassured the disciples that because they knew him, that they knew the Father. But Thomas wasn't the only troubled one in the room. This time it was Philip who spoke up and he would be reminded that not only that Jesus is the way, but Jesus is the truth. Look at verses 8 through 11. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you, among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus had just promised to bring his disciples to God, but Philip essentially said, hey, how about you just bring God to us? We want to see the Father. Show him to us and that'll be enough. He didn't realize, he didn't understand fully that he was saying that to God in the flesh. Can't you hear the sorrow in our Savior's reply? Have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? In other words, Philip, am I not enough? Am I not enough? Just as Jesus just said that he was the way, but he also said that he was the truth. Did Philip totally miss that part? Did the others miss that part? For the past three years, Jesus had been showing them the Father through the words that he said and the works that he did. His words were given to him by the Father, and so were his works. In fact, he says, the Father is doing the works through me. Back in chapter 10, Jesus explicitly said, I and the Father are one. And he also said, 
the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He said those exact words. In verse 10 here, he's essentially asked Philip, did you forget that? Do you not believe what I said? Are you forgetting the truth? John made Jesus' oneness with the Father known to his readers right out of the gate in his gospel. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Show us the Father. Jesus says, I have. I have. He told Philip, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, to be fair, John was just as confused as Philip was in this moment, right? He wrote his gospel a long time after all of this happened. Clarity didn't come until after Jesus' resurrection, and they were given the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth. But Jesus made it clear here that he had already given them plenty of evidence that pointed to the truth. If they didn't believe because of what he said, they should have at least believed because of what he did. Listen, even weak faith in Jesus is still faith that's anchored to the truth. And that truth is strong because our Savior is strong. Because our Savior is the truth. He is in the Father. And the Father is in Him. This is good news for troubled hearts. Why? It means that we don't have to fear that the Father is hiding something from us. Isn't that great? We don't have to worry that he might not let us into the place that, that Jesus has prepared for us. There are other religions that, that tell you you have to work and work and work to get there. And even when you get there, that God might not let you in. Not so with Jesus. Not so with the Father. What we see with the Son is what we get with the Father because Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. They will never contradict each other. We will never be loved by the Son and hated by the Father or the other way around. Do you know that? We'll never discover something about the Father's character that doesn't line up with the Son's character. If we know the Son, we will also know the Father because Jesus is the truth. He truly reveals the Father to us. Jesus has shown us the Father. And that is enough. Jesus is enough for us. Jesus knew his disciples' hearts continued to be troubled, and so once again, he pointed them to the, re to the remedy. Believe me. Trust me. Verse 11. I'm telling you the truth. I am the truth. Believe me. The beauty of the resurrection is that it proves that Jesus is the truth and speaks the truth. Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was shown to be the Son of God when he, raised, or when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. The one who was shown to be the Son of God through his resurrection has shown the Father to us through his words 
and his works. And what's more, he hasn't just shown us the Father, he's promised to take us to the Father. His resurrection also proves that not even death itself can keep him from keeping that promise or any other promise like the one that he made back in chapter 6 when he said, this is the will of my Father, the one who's in me and in whom I am. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus isn't the only one that's getting resurrected. When we're faced with circumstances that trouble our hearts, we panic, right? Our tendency is to want to say, Lord, change my situation and that'll be enough. You ever prayed that? We're confronted with our own lack of resources and our own strength, lack of strength to handle the things that, 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 that trouble us, and we ask God to show up. Where are you, Lord? We feel like we can only see him if he moves the circumstance out of the way. But in his grace, such grace, Jesus patiently reminds us that he has never left and he never will. He reminds us that he is enough for us and that he is working in our circumstances to change our hearts, our troubled hearts, and deepen our trust in him and his very true promises. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is the life. Look at verses 12 through 14. Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now it's important for us to keep these words in their proper context. Sometimes it's easy for us to get caught up in what Jesus is saying and feel like he's speaking these things directly to us. But we need to remember that we were not in that upper room. We need to remember the setting here. He was saying these words to the 11 disciples in the upper room on the night before he was going to be crucified. He was preparing them for his departure and for their specific mission. These 11 would be sent out with a few others that God would choose as apostles to lay the foundations for the establishment of the church with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. It's easy for us to hear the words that Jesus said in verse 12 and get excited about the spectacular, the, the greater works, to the neglect of the Savior. We need to remember that there is no greater work to be found than Jesus' own crucifixion and resurrection. What can be greater than that? He's the only way to the Father. We can't top that. Jesus began this conversation in verse 1 by telling these 11 disciples, hey, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And now he was reassuring them that if they believed in him, even though he was going away, God would continue his work through them in an even greater way. And in next week's passage, we'll see how that could be possible. 
God would send his Holy Spirit to be with them forever. In the book of Acts, we see that Jesus kept the promises that he made right here in these verses. The early church began to form and grow rapidly as the apostles preached the word of God and performed many works, signs and wonders. But those signs and wonders were always meant to confirm the truth that they were preaching, the gospel message of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. The scope of the apostles' ministry was, yes, greater than that of Christ's. Jesus never had 3,000 people repent and believe in him after he preached one sermon. Go read John chapter 6 again. He actually lost a lot of people. But the aim of the apostles' ministry was to point thousands and thousands of people to the greater work of salvation that only Jesus Christ could give to them. That was their role. After Peter and John healed the lame man, they said this to the Jewish leaders who questioned them in Acts chapter 4. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to the people by which we must be saved. Sounds a lot like Jesus' words here in verse 6, right? They finally got it. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here in verses 12 through 14, Jesus wasn't telling his disciples, after I'm gone, it's your turn for the spotlight. That's not what he was saying. He was promising to give them everything that they needed in order to keep him front and center. Peter and John healed that lame man in the name of Jesus. The entire ministry of the apostles was fueled by prayer and dependence upon Jesus. And here's the beauty of it. As they sought to establish the early church in the name of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, you know the first nickname that the church got? The way. And they got that nickname as they preached the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people heard it and believed and found life in him. Isn't that amazing? But just because Jesus' words here meant something specific for these soon-to-be apostles, that doesn't mean that there's no application to be found in them for us. If that were the case, nothing in this entire passage would be of help to us, right? Because we're, still in, we're not still in the upper room. We're listening in on a conversation between Jesus and 11 other men in the upper room. Just as their lives were directed by Jesus, our lives are directed by Jesus because Jesus is the life. We may not be apostles like they were, but Jesus' call to them is the same call to us. Believe in me. Trust me. That's a universal application. Why? Because Jesus is the only way. We may not have the same specific ministry that they did, but we have been given the same Holy Spirit that they were given, and we certainly have the opportunity and the invitation to pray as they did. But we need to be clear on the purpose of our asking and the purpose of Jesus' answering our prayers. In verse 13, he tells us that's the so that. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. When we keep that in our minds, that shapes 
the words that come out of our mouths when we pray. Jesus didn't give the disciples carte blanche here. He didn't say, whatever you ask, he qualified it. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Prayer is not something that we use to try to get what we want from Jesus. Prayer is something that Jesus uses to change our wants into his wants. To ask in his name is to ask in accordance with who he is. Who is he? He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. We conform our requests to the word and the character of Christ not the other way around. We don't ask Jesus in the name of anything. We ask anything in the name of Jesus. And when we ask, we trust that because he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he will answer our prayers according to his good and perfect will. Here's something we can always ask in his name and be guaranteed that he will do it. Are you ready for this? Guarantee. We can always ask for the grace that we need to walk through this life in greater dependence upon him and greater confidence in him. He'll never say no to that. Never. His word tells us that he gives grace to the humble. We can trust that he'll give us that grace Because he is the life. He's the resurrection and the life. His resurrection guarantees that our final destination for all of those who believe in him is at home with the Father. And if Jesus has gone to the Father to prepare a place for us, you know that he didn't just go to prepare the place for the 11. Why? Because he said, my Father's house has many rooms. Many rooms. So if he's gone there to prepare a place for us, and if he's promised to come back for us and take us to himself so that where he is, there we will be also, then we can be certain, certain, without a doubt, no hesitation, we can be certain that he will give us everything that we need to sustain us until he comes. Is your heart troubled? doesn't have to be there really is a bright side and it's far greater than any mere sentiment it's the resurrected savior and this resurrected savior is the way he's the truth and he is the life he hasn't come just to tell us to change our minds about our situation. He invites us to fix our minds on him. He's not promised to change our current circumstances, but he has promised to provide a future home that has many, many rooms. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in Jesus. Trust him. There's plenty of room in the Father's house for all who do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. 
we confess, how quickly we forget. And we are so thankful that you are so quick to remind. Not in a condescending way, but because you know that we need it. And you're a good father who loves his children. We're thankful that we can be confident in Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. That we can be confident in his promises because he never speaks things that aren't so. And that we can grow in our dependence upon him and not fear the unknown, not fear the things that overwhelm us. That we can fix our minds, stay them on Christ. and find rest for our troubled hearts. We praise you for that, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.